You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for seasons of opportunity that you give us in your work. And right now, Lord, uh, with Easter Sunday coming up towards the end of this month, we think, Lord, of what a tremendous opportunity it is. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts by your word, by your spirit, that we would make the most of that opportunity and every opportunity that you give us in your son. We're so grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we see that God was moving in a tremendous way among the early church, just as we've been studying. I mean, this is no let off one bit for where we've been in the past several weeks. God's just doing amazing things among these first Christians. But but we saw things change a little bit in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, the first sort of I know dark notes of the symphony start being heard, right? With this whole thing with Ananias and Sapphira. And it's a heavy thing when people are dropping dead in the midst of the Christian community because they just can't handle the the holiness and the purity and the the work of the Spirit that's going on. But now here in chapter 6, we have another sort of dark note being sounded, or at least the potential for one. So let's take a look at it together here, starting at verse 1. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Well, if you notice right here, it tells us very plainly that complaining arose in the church. I'm shocked to hear that there would be complaining in the church. Can you imagine such a thing? I don't know. I, I wish we could find something that more relevant for church life today. But, of course, I'm joking, right? I mean, this is just common. But isn't it refreshing to see right back here in the book of Acts? You, you see that the church wasn't perfect even from the very beginning. There arose complaining there against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, let me just sort of give you some broad background here. To this point in the book of Acts... The attacks of Satan against the church came on many different fronts. He attempted many times to sort of intimidate and push back against the church to get them to back off from the God-inspired mission that Jesus gave them to spread his gospel and to impact their world for Jesus Christ. But all the threats, all the intimidation, they didn't work at all. We've seen it time and time again, right? I mean, I don't want to act as if it's getting boring, but it's getting a little bit repetitive, right? The apostles or others get dragged up in front of the council. The council tells them to stop. They say respectfully, no, we're not going to stop. And they go out and they keep preaching the gospel, right? Hasn't this happened to us, what, like three, maybe four times so far to this point in the book of Acts? Then last chapter we saw how Satan tried to corrupt the church from within, to bring in people from within, Ananias and Sapphira. People would have a false spirituality, that hypocritical kind of thing where they were interested in the image of spirituality, but, but not in the real fact of it in their lives. Now, those strategies were all unsuccessful in trying to stop what God was doing among the early Christians. But now, Satan dials in his strategy on a little bit different tact, a little bit different angle, and here it is. Now he's doing the classic thing of trying to divide and conquer. Now you could say that Acts chapter 5 and 6, with those two chapters, the good old days were over for the earliest Christians. Didn't last very long, did it? 
basically, if I could put it this way, Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, no problems, only glory. Now with chapter 5, already you start to have problems. They now had to deal with things like inward corruption, as we saw in Acts chapter 5. And now they have to deal with disputes and potential divisions starting now in chapter 6. And can I just say, I am so comforted by the fact to see that the early church, the earliest apostolic church had to deal with these things. Doesn't that comfort us? Can I just say this? Problems are normal in the church. Anytime you get a bunch of people together who are not yet perfected, and I think that pretty much covers everybody in this room, certainly covers the man behind the pulpit, you get them together and tell them to live together and love one another and accomplish things for God's kingdom together, and you're going to have sometimes disputes and problems and difficulties in their midst. It should not surprise us. It should not shock us. The reaction of Christians to conflict or difficulty in the church should not be, oh, how could it ever be? No, your action should be, how are we going to deal with it? And that's exactly what they did in this situation. I'll tell you, I'll give you the end of the story right now. They dealt with it great in Acts chapter 6. There was the potential for real division, for problems, for, for superficial solutions that didn't solve anything. And they didn't do any of those things. Instead, they did the right thing before God and the people. So it wasn't the fact that there were problems and complainings and potential divisions among them that was the big problem. No, no, no. The biggest thing was that they dealt with these things correctly. So you give a clue of that in verse 1 where it says that all of this happened when the number of the disciples was multiplying. In other words, there was a great work of God's kingdom through that early Christian community that was going on. It was highly successful. They were doing the job. These problems weren't slowing the work down. Now, the dispute came up. If you'll notice again in verse 1, it says very plainly, it came up against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. I need to give you a little bit of background on these two groups. In the Jewish world of that day... You could roughly divide up the whole Jewish community into two groups. There were Hebrews and there were Hellenists. And I'm going to oversimplify it just a little bit for you. But but again, sometimes these simplifications are helpful. Hebrews were Jews that were more inclined to embrace Jewish culture. And they came from Judea, that is Jerusalem and the area surrounding it. Hellenists were Jews that came from a Greek cultural background and they predominantly spoke Greek and they came from all other areas in the larger Roman Empire. Now again, Hellenists were more likely to embrace Greek culture. Hebrews were more likely to embrace Jewish culture. And those two groups didn't always get along. Now I'm not talking about in the church, I'm just talking about in the broader Jewish world at that time. In the broader Jewish world at that time, generally speaking, Hebrews looked at Hellenists and they said, you guys are a bunch of compromisers with Greek culture. If you really loved God, you'd cast off all these things of Greek culture and you'd really embrace God's culture, which is Hebrew culture. That's how the Hebrews thought of the Hellenists. The Hellenists looked at the Hebrews and you know what they said? They said, You fuddy-duddy old people caught in your traditions from 2,000 years ago, why don't you get it up modern and up to the date? 
That was the general line of division between the two. It was the traditionalists against the modernists. The modernists against the traditionalists. Those fault lines already existed in the Jewish community of that day. So now in these days of the early church, when thousands of Jewish people are coming to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, those fault lines already existed in the early church community because they already existed in the larger Jewish community. Now, it's very important for us to remember this, even in verse 1, as we see titles like Hebrews and Hellenists, we remember that these were Christians, followers of Jesus. They were all from a Jewish background, but they had embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And what was the dispute? Well, if you look at it again in verse 1, it says the dispute or the complaint arose because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. What was the daily distribution? Well, again, in the larger Jewish world at that time, they took their responsibility to provide for widows and orphans very seriously. And let me tell you, in that day and age, there was no safety net whatsoever, none. Widows were notorious for being absolutely destitute. And the worst of all would be a widow who had no children. If a widow had no surviving children, then she had nobody to provide for her whatsoever. And so in the Jewish world of that time, there was what they called a daily distribution where money would be collected, uh, pious Jews would give the money, the temple authorities would distribute it, and everybody would be provided for Well, this practice was carried over quite easily, quite logically into the Christian world because the early church took its responsibility to support widows seriously but because they had no other support and they expected these widows in turn to serve the church family. You'll find that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. By the way, you might want to make a little marginal note in your Bible. If you want to read about how the church ministered to widows in their midst, read it in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, I just want to point out one little thing without going into too great a depth on it. But I see here a growing division between the Jewish world and the Christian world. It's very important for us to understand that the church as of Acts chapter 6 still saw itself as being Jewish. If you were to walk up to Peter or Paul, or not Paul at this point, Saul of Tarsus isn't even saved yet. I shouldn't even have said that. If you were talking to Peter or John or James or any of the disciples, if you were to go up to them and say, well, why aren't you Jewish anymore? Why have you become Christian? They'd look at you and they'd think you were the strangest person in the world. They'd say, renounce my Judaism. I fulfilled my Judaism. I was born a Jew and I'm still a faithful Jew today. I'm just recognizing who my Messiah is and that's Jesus Christ. And by the way, at this point in the book of Acts, not a single non-Jew has been brought into the Christian community. They're all from a Jewish background. And so they considered themselves just... Now, here's the question. If they all considered themselves of a Jewish background... Why were not the Christian widows provided through the normal Jewish structure? Why did the Christians have to have their own structure? And I believe it was this. I believe that the Jewish authorities, because they did not like the fact that the apostles would not stop talking about Jesus, I think that they probably refused to support these widows who had trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And so the disciples right away got together and said, okay, let's fix this. We will provide for them because they felt that this was necessary. Now, verse 1 also tells us, last point here on verse 1, 
that the Hellenists believed that their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, Apparently, some of the Christians from a Hellenistic background believed that the widows among the Hebrew Christians received better care. There's not a hint here in the text that the oversight was deliberate. It, It was just a thing that because of a congregation of that size, it was inevitable that somebody's needs were going to be overlooked, and now it was the part of the Hebrew, uh, the Christians from a Hellenistic background, all Jews, that they felt that they were being neglected. You know, I, I believe that there are few things that Satan loves to use more to divide God's people than an unintentional wrong. Unintentional wrongs can sometimes be like a bomb in the midst of Christians. You know why they're so wrong? Because the person who is wronged feels really aggrieved. How could you do this to me? The person who did the wrong oftentimes doesn't even know that they did something wrong. And unintentional wrongs, as I believe this was here in Acts chapter 6. Listen, this could be a very difficult thing for the church. I believe that the Hellenists were right in their hearts and the Hebrews were right in their facts. These were perfect conditions for a church-splitting conflict. So what was going to happen? How were the apostles going to deal with this? It's really beautiful. Look at it here in verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The first thing the disciples do when they were given this cause, the the, the apostles came, the complaint came to them, hey, our widows are being neglected. What are you going to do about this, apostles? The apostles prayed about it. I'm sure that they thought, well, maybe we should address this. Maybe we should administrate this whole program. They they, they said they thought about it, they prayed about it, and what did they say? The verse 2, they said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The apostles explained that it was more important for them to remain faithful to their central calling, which was prayer and the ministry of the word. It was wrong for them to spend their time administrating the practical needs of the widows. Now, I have to say, there are some people who read this text and they think that the apostles were wrong here. I've heard some people teach this, some people that I respect, teach it as if the apostles were being high and mighty and superior, as if they were saying, well, we don't want to soil our hands with that messy work. No, give it to somebody else. I honestly don't believe that that was the heart of the apostles here. I believe that they were wise in delegating these responsibilities. God did not call these apostles to do everything for the church. God has and he will raise up and train up other people to do the work. You know, and I think this is relevant today in how we see people who serve God and who lead in the church today. A pastor should not have his time consumed in tasks that are essentially serving tables. Yet I will say this, there's something wrong with a pastor who thinks that that kind of work is beneath him. There's something wrong with a pastor that does have a high view of himself and, well, I can't bother myself with such trifles. No. No, no, there's something wrong if the system is set up to where he has to wait tables, so to speak. But there's something wrong as well if he considers himself above it. 
Oh, by the way, I should let you know that this didn't really concern the actual serving of food and cleaning of dining tables for these widows. This speaks of handling the practical administration of the financial and the practical details relevant to taking care of the widows. To serve tables was simply a way that they took it. They spoke of the table there as being the table where money would be exchanged and distributed. They're talking about administrative duties here. Instead, the apostles said... We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. The fact that the apostles busied themselves with prayer and the ministry of the word shows how energetically they did those things and how consuming it is to preach rightly and to pray rightly. I almost wish that I was speaking to a room full of pastors here. Because if I was speaking to a room full of pastors, I know what I would say. I would say, Pastor, you, you love this verse, don't you? You love this verse to be able to claim, well, you know, I shouldn't do that. I should be giving myself to the work of, of, of the Word of God and to prayer. Well, great, Pastor. Do you work at the Word of God and at prayer? That's the question for the pastor there, isn't it? Do you really make it a labor? Do you invest your time and your heart and your soul and your energy in that work? Or, or do you just use this verse as a handy way to slough off work that you don't want to do? Listen, if it's done rightly, the ministry is a lot of work, even apart from administrative headaches. If a pastor or a leader really wants to be used to teach the Word of God and to distribute those things, you better give yourself to it thoroughly. You better make it your life's work. Not your life's play, your life's work. There's a great Bible teacher from a generation ago named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he really was a tremendous Bible teacher in America. And a young man once said to Donald Gray Barnhouse, he said, Dr. Barnhouse, I'd give the world to be able to teach the Bible like you. Barnhouse was sort of a severe man, so he looked at the young man straight in the eye and he said, good, because that's exactly what it's going to cost you. And this is how it should be for pastors. If you're going to do this, then do it. Give yourself continually, not only to the Word of God, but to prayer. I read this week, and I was convicted greatly to it. They, they, they gave themselves more than to just the ministry of the Word. They also gave themselves diligently to prayer. And I said, God, you know I, I try to give myself diligently to your Word, but, but Father, I see I don't do enough in prayer. And it just made me want to redouble my heart, redouble my efforts all the time. Lord, I want to give myself not only to the hard work of ministry of the word, but also of prayer. And so what did they do? They said, no, we're not going to fill the breach. We're not going to fill the gap. Instead, we're going to push some ministry down and appoint some people. Did you see what they said? Verse 3, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. The apostles, that is the twelve, that's mentioned in verse 2, spoke to the general group of the believers, the multitude of the disciples. That's there in verse 2, right? So the apostles spoke to the general group of believers. Now, I don't know how many were there. The church at this time was more than 5,000 people. I kind of doubt that it would have been impractical for the apostles to speak to all 5,000. But, but surely they spoke to the people who were concerned with the problem. And surely they spoke to people right there in the midst who were interested in it. So they spoke to this group of disciples and they simply said what? They said, seek out from among you those who can do this job and fulfill this work. 
I tell you, I love how the apostles did this. They pursued their solution with a lot of communication and with a lot of input from among the people. They even asked those, and I mean probably those who felt wronged, to suggest men of good character to do this work. Now, can I say, this was a wonderful way to solve the problem. If you want to think about it, a great way to think about this text is all the things that the apostles didn't do, right? Let's say they get their great big meeting together, right? And they say, okay, we're going to talk about the problem. We got some people complaining because the Hellenistic widows are being neglected. Here's our great big meeting, and let's do this. Here's what we're going to do about this. All you people are complaining, get out. Did they say that? They didn't say that. How about this one? All you people are complaining, you're in sin, and you need to change. They didn't shun the complainers either. They didn't say this, and this would have been an easy thing to say. Okay, look, we got this problem between the Christians from a Hebrew background and the Christians from a Hellenistic background. Here's what we're going to do about this. We're going to divide into two churches. We're going to have the first apostolic church Hebrew and the first apostolic church Hellenist. They could have done that, right? They didn't do that either. They didn't form a committee and say, let's discuss the problem to death, did they? Now, I don't doubt for a minute that whether there's somebody who was suggesting or somebody were hoping that the apostles themselves would step into the breach and direct the attention of the district, direct the problem of the distribution to help the widows. But instead, what did they do? The apostles wisely and by the Holy Spirit, it's like they said, this is great. This is an opportunity to bring more people into the work of the ministry. We've got us 12 here and we're doing the job. We're working day and night. There's lots to do. But now we have the chance to bring more people into the work of serving God. And might I say this? Meeting unmet needs is a great way of bringing more people into ministry. Is that a marvelous thing? If more people want to serve God in a church family, a great way to do it is look for some unmet needs and meet them. And that's exactly what was happening here. Instead of getting all worried about it, instead of condemning, instead of kicking people out, all the rest of it, the apostles simply said, this is a tremendous opportunity to give more people the privilege of serving God. And so what did they do? They said, let's pick some people. Let's do it. And he told the, the, the disciples, the, the apostles there, they told the assembled crowd, look for men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. That's right there in verse 3. The qualifications described by the apostles focused on the character of the men to be chosen. The apostles were far more interested in the internal quality of the men than in their outward appearance or their image. I love this. You know, that's the greatest qualification for ministry. Character. I'm amazed at all the time when I look at those lists in 1 Timothy and in Titus. Those lists that describe what a godly leader in God's church should look like. You know what those lists are all about? Those lists are all about character. What kind of character a man has. 
And that's what they were looking for. Men of outstanding character. He didn't say pick the most popular people. He didn't say pick the most influential people. He didn't say pick the smartest people. He said pick men who are godly. Men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Men who have wisdom. And men who are of good reputation. By the way, I love that phrase as it's used there in verse 3. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You know what that kind of says to me? Full of the Holy Spirit means that they were spiritually minded. Wisdom means that they were practically minded. God loves his church when he gives them plenty of leaders who are both spiritually minded and practically minded. Sometimes leaders in the church can be so spiritually minded they don't know anything practical. And that can be a danger, right? There are other times where leaders in the church are so good at the practical that they neglect the spiritual. Well, it should be both, right? Leadership should have both within it, both the spiritually minded and the practically minded. And they said, pick out for yourselves seven men who fit this. Now, I love this because they showed so much trust in the people. They didn't pick the names themselves. They said, listen, we want you guys to feel confident in these people who are going to be here to serve your needs. So you pick out seven from among you. And they did this. But if you notice very carefully here in verse three, they said at the end of the verse, pick out seven men whom we may appoint. The final decision rested with the apostles. They asked the congregation to nominate the men that is seek out from among you. But the decision was going to rest with the apostles. This is not what you would exactly call an exercise of congregational government, even though the apostles very wisely wanted and valued input from the congregation. And they were going to appoint them over this business. Those seven men were going to be chosen to serve tables. Now, this is interesting. The work that they were called to do was mainly practical. You know, what would be involved in it? All right, get a roster of the widows who need support. Uh, make sure that they're legit and that they have lifestyles that are comporting with receiving support, that they're making some return to the church. Again, all of this is contained in First Timothy chapter 5. But make that list, study over it, make some kind of schedule, make some kind of accounting for the money that comes in, accounting for the money that goes out. Maybe you have a little thing where people can go if there's a problem with the system. You know, on and on. It's a whole administrative function, right? And in this whole mainly administrative function, you ask yourself, why do they need spiritual men to do this? Why do you need men who are full of the Holy Spirit to do mainly administrative things? And I can think of great or think of two reasons for this. First of all, it's simply understanding that every service among God's people is a spiritual service. Matter of fact, I'll back it up even more. Everything we do should be spiritual service. You work at your job. And I don't know what your job is, but let's say your job seems as far away from the things of God as you can imagine. Just imagine in your mind, first of all, somebody works in a factory, right? And there they are. They're working at a factory and they work in a machine and they stamp out things in a machine all day. And they think this is the most unspiritual work in the world. Not so. If you go to your workplace and approach it as a true man or woman of God, you'll see that the work that you do there is spiritual. First of all, by the Spirit of God, you're going to do the best job you can and be a wonderful worker. You're going to be the best person on your assembly line and turn out the best work and be the most engaging with your boss and your co-workers. Secondly, you're going to realize that you work with people all around you who need Jesus. And what opportunity can you have? 
You see, friends, all work is spiritual work. You say, well, what does it matter? You know, you're, you're entering accounting things and keeping track of the widows and buying food for them or doing this. How does all of that matter? Well, can you imagine when that poor little widow comes up to the table to receive her weekly or her daily allotment and she comes up, it would take a spiritual man to be able to look at her face and say, she's really worried about something, isn't she? And say, ma'am, I'm happy to give you your money for the day, but can we pray for you? What do you need? How can we help you? And it wasn't only a practical thing. It was still very spiritual. But friends, even the more practical things in the church need a real spiritual mind to be carried out. There is no great division here between the spiritual and the practical. They simply got the job done. So before we go on to verse 5 and the closing section for our text this morning, I just want to say how amazing it was that the apostles did what they did. I really like what a man named James Montgomery Boyce said about this text. He said this, quote, The apostles were not trying to protect their own rights. They were not even protecting their own point of view. They simply wanted to solve the problem. And that's exactly what they did. Now on to verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of people multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Listen, this was a wonderful decision that the apostles made. The people embraced it gladly. Did you see it right there in verse 5? And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now, I'm not going to say that it was a good decision just because it pleased the multitude, but that was confirming the wisdom of the apostles through the agreement of the people. The apostles were led of the Lord, not popular opinion, yet because they were all in basic agreement, they agreed on how the Lord was leading the apostles. And so they chose these men, and you saw their names, right? Starting there in verse 5, it mentions uh, Philip and Procurus and uh, uh, Nicanor and Stephen before them and all these names. And you know what's fascinating about this? All seven names are Greek in origin, which proves that they were probably Hellenists themselves. The people and the apostles showed great sensitivity to the offended Hellenists by appointing Hellenists to take care of the widow's distribution. Now, don't you imagine in the church at that time that there were probably more Aramaic-speaking Christians, more Hebrew Christians from a Hebrew background rather than Hellenists? But yet they said, no, we're going to make the entire group that serves these widows, we're going to make the entire group a group of Hellenists. So what did they do? They brought these men before them. They set them before the apostles. The apostles prayed, and then they laid hands upon them. And it was a beautiful thing. The people nominated them. The apostles approved them. And then they laid hands on them for prayer, praying for God's guidance and approval. Again, I just want to stress, these men were doing what to the human eye was mainly practical service. Yet the apostles thought it was important to lay their hands on them as if it was spiritual service. Why? Because it was spiritual service. Practical service is spiritual service. By the way, 
The same ancient Greek word that's used for distribution in chapter 6, verse 1, is the same Greek word used for ministry in verse 4. It's the same idea. The idea behind the word in both places is service, whether in practical ways or spiritual ways. You know, sometimes I think about that. I think about people who serve God in very practical ways. Uh, how about this? The, the, the people out who serve in our parking lot, right? Now, that doesn't seem like a very spiritual service, right? There you are. You wear an orange vest. You tell cars to go there, and hopefully you're doing it in a kind way to everybody and just being nice all along the way and loving people and helping them to park their cars. Friends, can I tell you, that's spiritual service. It's done unto the Lord. It's done in a way that brings glory to God and, and it's all part of a team of what God does. We must be very careful that we make this big division between the, the, the people who do the spiritual things that should be high and exalted and the people who do humble, menial things. Well, then they're sort of in a second tier. Never, never is it that way in God's kingdom. We all serve together and we all give them glory together. People should count it a privilege to serve God in basic, practical ways instead of seeing it as an unspiritual burden. You know what I think is wonderful about that? Jesus spent three years doing spiritual service, right? He spent about 30 years before that doing just very practical, regular service and glorifying God in both places. Now, nowhere in the book of Acts are these men called deacons. But they, in the minds of almost everybody, they fulfilled what would later on be called the office of deacon as described in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The word deacon simply means servant. And these men were certainly servants. They did their job and the work of God went forward, so much so that we read there in verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know, considering all that could have gone wrong when Satan tried to attack through dividing the church, everybody involved in this deserves a lot of credit. I think those with the complaint, the Hellenists, they did the right thing. What did they do? They had a complaint and they made it known. They made it known to the apostles. Instead of continuing to complain and whine, they trusted the solution of the apostles. They simply said, hey, here's the problem, apostles. Would you please look to it? Those of the other party, the Hebrews, they did the right thing too. They recognized that the Hellenists had a legitimate need and they also trusted the solution of the apostles. The seven men who were chosen, they did the right thing. They accepted the call, even though it might have been considered to be unglamorous service. And the apostles did the right thing. They responded to the need without distracting themselves from their central task. I tell you, when God's people do the right thing like this, it's a glorious, glorious thing. And you see it right here as this potential serious division was avoided. And the result of it, verse 7 again, the word of God spread. Because the situation was handled with wisdom and sensitivity to those who were offended, a potentially divisive issue was diffused and the gospel continued to go forth. Even so much so that it says in verse 7 that a great many of the priests came to faith in Jesus. 
I like what one commentator says about this. He says, listen, the church gave the Holy Ghost deacons and they got back converted priests. The disciples chose Holy Ghost deacons and they got Holy Ghost martyrs and evangelists. Think about it. These men were chosen to do common things. But as we're going to see in the coming chapters, two of these men, Stephen and Philip, these were very uncommon men. One will have the great privilege of being the first martyr for the church. And we're going to see that starting next week. The other one is the first man in the book of Acts given that glorious title, evangelist. These men would go forth and do something great for God. All in all, we see that Satan's strategy failed. Satan tried to divide the church and it didn't work. But, but Satan's strategy also failed in a secondary sense The apostles were not distracted from their legitimate focus on the ministry of the word and in prayer. Now, I want to close with just one quick look at a verse we're going to start with next week. Look at verse 8. What does it say there? And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonder and signs among wonders and signs among the people. Wait a minute. Wasn't this the guy who was like stationed at the food table to do administrative things? Isn't that this guy, so to speak, working out in the parking lot or or keeping the books or doing something like that? And yet we see that God was using him in a mighty spiritual way. He was chosen to do practical things, but he was a spiritual man. He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, I guess that's my challenge to you. If you notice what it said right there in verse 3, that they wanted to choose men among them who were full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. I want to know, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you need to ask God today for a new filling? What hinders you from being full of the Holy Spirit? What may be hindering you is some blatant sin in your life that's grieving the work of the Spirit. Oh, no, don't let that happen. If there's some sin in your life that's grieving the Spirit of God, well, then there's no wonder that you don't feel the full power and exercise of the Spirit of God in your life. Because you're grieving the Spirit. Can I just say, get that right with Him today. Today, before leaving this room, get it right with Him. But in a secondary way, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, simply ask. Ask God to do it right here, right now. You know, in just a few moments, we're going to take communion together. And I think that communion speaks of two powerful things related to this filling of the Holy Spirit. The first thing is that if there's some sin in your life that's grieving the Holy Spirit, that bread in your hand and that cup in your hand, that speaks of how you're cleansed from that sin. That speaks of the power that God will give you to free you from the bondage of that sin. You can be set free from that which in your life today grieves the Holy Spirit. And the answer is in that bread, in that cup, and what it represents, the death of Jesus Christ for you on the cross. And then the second, just as you, by faith, you take that bread in your mouth, you drink that cup, trusting that both are good for you and wholesome and fine. In the same way, receive the Holy Spirit who is promised to you. That's God's invitation to you right now. I see it in my life and in the world at large more than ever. We need to be a spirit-filled people who reach out and touch our community. And it begins by doing these basic things. Because listen, isn't that the great, great answer 
to conflict and dispute in the church, for really to be people walking in the spirit. How about this? Have you ever heard this? They were so filled with the spirit that they just couldn't get along. (laughs) Doesn't really ring like that, does it? No, that's the great answer for unity and for progress in the church, to be filled with the spirit. So let's prepare our hearts right now to receive communion. And I want you to think of it in two ways. First of all, to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross, but to remember that he did that on the cross so that you could be set free from sin and filled with his spirit. 